Hello and welcome to Strange Shenanigans. I am Stan. I'm Ashley. And we're coming at you with some uh, strange topics today. What do you got, Ashley? Um, well, our topic of the day, topic of the day, is disappearances. Disappearances. But you could talk about that forever, so I just picked one. Yeah, I obviously love disappearances. Yeah, because if we talked about all disappearances, we'll just go on forever, and then we'd have nothing to talk about for the rest of our lives. Yeah, this would be disappearance shenanigans. Right, we don't want to disappear on Strange disappearances. So I just have one disappearance, but I went local. You you didn't go local. I went way the hell out of local, that's for sure. Yeah, and historical. You went historical and worldwide. Yeah. So we're going to learn something today. Yes, we are. You're, I'm not going to teach you anything. Oh, well, that's I did not go historical. Man. <laughs> Mr. Rogers would be disappointed. He would. But as you know on Strange Shenanigans, normally when we're not doing strange news and talking about random things live, we each pick a topic and don't tell each other about it. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> We say our whole topic and our whole spiel, and then we wildly speculate and talk to each other about it. Yep. So if you want to join in the conversation, find us on Twitter at The Strange Show. But otherwise, we're going to do all the talking on this one. Right. It's been a little bit since we've done all the talking on this I one. I know. We've been doing a lot of live. And if you like, like this and you want to jump into it... it you should meet us on live because you can jump in right into oh, it. Oh yeah, us. we'd love you to jump right in. And Send hear us your a message thoughts. and then ask ask for a call in and we'll get you right in. And that's really easy to call in thanks to Podbean. If you right. just go to our, our the strange show on Podbean yep. and we're live, you just you just, call, you in, just yeah. call in. Like there's nothing to it. It's a button. Yep. It's cool. It's pretty neat. Nifty, Nifty. technology. Mm-hmm. All right. So since you went all historical on us and worldwide on us, yeah. Well, let's hear it. Let's hear it. All right. So I'm going to talk about a man who disappeared, who uh, is one of history's greatest heroes who you've probably never heard of. Probably not. All right? Um, so it, he, he's a very interesting man who put a lot of effort into one thing in particular because of a very small connection to it. So in 1938, there was some stuff going on, right? <laughs> Just a few things going on so, in 1938. The Kingdom of Hungary uh, passed a series of anti-Jewish measures uh, modeled on the Nuremberg race laws enacted by the German Nazis in 1935. Uh, like their German counterparts, the Hungarian laws focused heavily on restricting Jews from certain professions, reducing the number of Jews in government and public service jobs, and prohibiting intermarriage. Uh, so there was... One man who uh, knew what what this was going to bring about and yep. where this was, and he knew what the end game was for the Germans, even though in the Hungarians, even though they tried to cloak it. So this man was Raoul Oscar Wallenberg. His parents married in 1911. Uh, his father was a Swedish naval officer. And uh, his, but his father died uh, three months before he was born of cancer. Oh, and horrible. sadly, following right after that, his maternal grandfather died of pneumonia right after his birth. Jeez. So his mother and grandmother, you know, they weren't they weren't the type of people to give up. So they they were like, we're gonna put into this together and we're gonna raise a strong, independent young man. So he he has a couple of. Uh, of brothers and a sister, 
who uh, were after uh, in his mother's second marriage. Uh, after high school and his compulsory eight months in the Swedish military, uh, Wallenberg's paternal grandfather sent him to study in Paris. Ooh. He spent one year there, and then in 1931, he studied architecture in, at the University of Michigan in the United States. Huh. Uh, and although uh, his family was rich, he worked at odd jobs in his free time and joined other young male students as a uh, passenger rickshaw handler in Chicago. Okay, then. He used his vacations... Not in the typical way that you would think a uh, socialite uh, European would. He spent it hitchhiking around America. That's the way to do uh, it. He wrote about his uh, his experiences to his grandfather saying, when you travel like a hobo, everything's different. <laughs> you have to be on alert the whole time. You're in close contact with new people every day. Hitchhiking gives you the training in diplomacy intact. Wahlberg was, uh, was very much aware of of his 116th Jewish ancestry and extremely proud of it. <laughs> well, it okay came then. from his great-great-grandmother uh, who immigrated from Stockholm in 1780 uh, and converted to Christianity after she came. Uh, there, There's actual historical data to back up his beliefs. Uh, he had many long conversations uh, about his ideas and plans for the future and what he was going to do and how he was going to do things, but it was always extremely important to him and he was always extremely proud of his partial Jewish ancestry. Um, he graduated the University of Michigan and returned to Sweden. He found, he found his American degree did not qualify him to practice as an architect, and uh, his grandfather later arranged him a job in Cape Town, South Africa, in an office of a Swedish company that sold construction material. After six months in South Africa, he took a new job in the Holland Bank in Hafia. He returned to Sweden in 1936, securing a job in Stockholm with the help of his father's cousin and grandfather at uh, the uh, Central European Trading Company, an export and import company trading between Stockholm and Central uh, Europe owned and operated by a Hungarian Jew. Huh. So after the uh, situation in Hungary began to deteriorate, he was the sole person who could actually go and represent his employer because his employer could not risk entering Hungary yep. or any other parts that were occupied by Germany because his he would be imprisoned and his wealth confiscated essentially. Yep. So he represented his employer in everything, especially in dealing with Hungary, where they intentionally did business. So people say some people are of the thought that he intentionally did business with Hungary so that they could get rich. Well. There's a lot more going on behind the scenes that people don't realize. Uh, uh, the situation in Hungary began to deteriorate as the tide of war began to turn against the Germans. Uh, following the Axis defeat in Stalingrad, uh, which Hungarian troops were fighting alongside the Germans in, with an 84% casualty rate, um, they began... Secretly pursuing peace talks with the United States and United Kingdom uh, upon 
learning uh, that the uh, the leader of Hungary Hungary was doing this, Adolf Hitler ordered the occupation of Hungary by German troops in 1944 immediately, which made the situation for the Hungarian Jews extremely worse. Yeah. Uh, they quickly took control of the country, placed uh, Horthy, who was uh, the leader of Hungary, under house arrest, and a pro-German puppet was installed in Budapest uh, with the actual power obviously resting with the German military governor, who was uh, an SS Brigade Fuhrer, Edmund Wessenmeyer. Mm-hmm. With the Nazis now in control, the relative security from the Holocaust enjoyed by the Jews of Hungary came to a complete and sudden end. Yep. Um, uh, in May 1944, the Nazi regime and its accomplices began the mass deportation of Hungarian Jews to the extermination camps in occupied, Nazi-occupied Poland under the personal leadership of SS Ostrom van Fjord, Adolf Eichmann. If you don't know who Adolf Eichmann is, go pick up a goddamn history book. Who was later tried, Adolf Eichmann this is, and hung in Israel for his implementation yep. of the Nazis' final solution, he, which he was the muscle of. Uh, deportations took a place at, place at a rate of 12,000 people per day. Um, so, Pimpernel, Smith screening Wallenberg, was directly ins- inspired by Pimpernel Smith, a 1941 British anti-Nazi propaganda thriller. The film had been banned in Sweden, but Wallenberg and his sister Nina had invited a private screening at the British Embassy in Stockholm. Enthalled by Professor Smith, played by Leslie Howard, who saved 28 Jews from the Nazis, Nina stated, We thought the film was amazing when we got up from our seats. Raoul said, That is the kind of thing I would like to be doing. Uh, Recruitment by the War Refugee Board at the end of uh, 1944 received an immediate publicized two important reports given to him by a Romanian diplomat, Florian Manuel, who just returned from a fact-finding trip in Romania in Budapest. Manuel received the materials from Mikas Mushis in Budapest, who worked with Karl Lutz to rescue Jews. One of the reports was probably written by a rabbi who all of this stuff was funneled through Raoul. Um... So Raoul, after this began, he continued his work for his Jewish employer into Hungary. He was the only one allowed into Hungary. He was the only one who could keep doing business with the fake government that was run by the SS of, okay. of Hungary. So oh, uh, this whole time, all these people from outside of the perspective are looking at him as this disgusting traitor. While in reality, he has set up a... a uh, a passport system that turns all of these Hungarian Jews into citizens of other countries. So he goes in in to Hungary and finds Jews and starts giving out these passports. And he starts buying up random massive properties that are abandoned all over the place. And every time he does... He slaps a giant Swiss flag on it and says it is part of the Swiss embassy. And the Germans are like, well, we can't do anything about this guy. No. We can't mess with him. The Hungarians are, are on his side at this point. And inside all of these fake 
Swiss Embassy hospitals, storerooms, factories, containers, all of them are hiding hundreds of Jewish citizens. Every single one of them. He's putting his life on the absolute line every time. And to the point where as they're loading Jews onto trains in Hungary to bring them to concentration camps, he busts through the guards with bags full of these these uh, citizenship papers and starts throwing them into people's hands on the train while the Germans start shooting at him with a machine gun. So what's he do? He climbs onto the top of the train where they can't hit him and starts throwing him through the window so that all the Jews can just walk out the door of the trains and the Nazis can't do anything. Wow. The whole time. And the whole time the Nazi Nazis on the ground want to end this man. But they know the, the political ramifications of cutting ties with this this manufacturing company that's one of the few things keeping them supplied is going to completely shut down their war effort. But at the same time, he's circumventing their whole final yeah. solution. And it comes to a point where Raul knows that uh, the Russians are going to be there. They're coming. He already knows that the Holocaust is happening while everybody else is busy being like, nobody would ever do that. And he's making sure that it's not happening to the Jewish people of Hungary. And so he, go, he goes and finds out that the plan as the Russians are coming in is to completely blow up and annihilate the Jewish ghetto and kill everyone. So he gets ahead of it and uses this political tact that he's developed from these years of weird, his years of weird existence between train hopping with hobos and <laughs> studying at the University of Michigan and studying in Paris and all these different weird things that he's done. And he convinces them that if they go through with this, they're all going to die horribly. If you kill these Jewish people and you annihilate this ghetto, it doesn't matter where you go to hide. Someone's eventually going to yep. find you, and it is going to be horrible for you. And so they don't do it. And the Germans <laughs> bail on the mission and try to get out before the Russians get there. At the same time, Raul knows that the Russians are coming for him because the Russians have decided that he is part of the German and Hungarian and Axis war machine even though they know he's not. Mm -hmm. But it's because he's, a, he's an independent thinker who seems to be operating for somebody else outside of socialism and fascism. Ah. So as he, while he, he stops this annihilation of the ghetto, it's too late for him to escape the Russians. And he is in, he's caught in a few days and imprisoned by the Russians. So... The Russians release, uh, well later, years later, that he died of a heart attack in the in uh, in the Lubyanka, which is a notorious friggin' KGB prison. Well, well, the the fact is that people who were investigating this were like, but you say he died like thirty days later. Mm -hmm. So there's this whole realm of things that's like, oh, well, he went to the Lubyanka, lived for a little bit, and died of a heart attack. But then there's other officers who said he was brought there and, and killed instantly because they knew he was 
going to be a resistance, and they thought he was working for the, the UK and the United States, and that he was part of the uh, OSS, which seems like that most likely was what his real role was. But nobody's ever come out and just said right, nobody that. knows. So, but there's there's all this mythology around him that he died, but then there's prisoners who have left Russia, the Russian prison system all the way up until the 70s that say that they met him and that he's still trapped there in Russia in prison and that oh. they can't admit at this point what they did as Soviets and release him and they're not going to because no. if, if you know anything about the Russian government they're never going to admit that they lied and they're never going to show you the proof that they lied no, for absolutely sure. absolutely not. So, oh, they're... Oh, it's not just people, you know, random, you know, oh, convicts who have been like, oh, I've seen Raul and I know he exists. It's all the way up to their own military members who were imprisoned under the Soviet Union because Stalin didn't want them threatening him. And there's other people, other foreign, you know, people, freedom fighters and such that were imprisoned and people who spoke out against socialism that were imprisoned that are like, Raul was still there until the 60s, 70s. And, and later. Hmm. So to this day, no one knows where Raul ended up. They don't know if he, he died the moment the Russians took him into custody. Or if he's been, if he remained for, you know, freaking 40, 50 years afterwards into his old, into old age in a Russian prison and nobody went to go find him. Oh, that'd be miserable. You know, so to this point, nobody still knows where what happened to Raul, and where where he ended up. But he is responsible for saving hundreds and thousands of Jewish lives. He is honored by Israel with one of the highest commendations any person can get, especially for not actually being a member of the Jewish religion. Yeah. And he's also recognized as a hero in multiple other countries for his service. But I can almost guarantee that you've never heard of Raoul Waldo. No. I have not. I have now, though. Yeah. And people people think that this, you know, I'm going to go on my political stump now. <laughs> that, you know, you know, this is what the the concept of, you know, the the Eastern Bloc socialism always led to was an extreme dictatorship every time. Yeah. And we can pretend that socialism is this fantastical fucking rainbow-filled world, but in reality, it is always end up in fascism. Yep. Every time. On that happy note, we'll be right back with whatever Ashley's going to talk well, we're about. we're all contemplating life. We'll be back. <laughs> okay, we're right back with Ashley's topic. Yeah. What do you got, Ashley? I have a story. A story. A story about a disappearing woman on the main side of the Appalachian Trail. Yeah. You know the hundred mile wilderness is in Maine, right? Yep. Yeah. That's that's a daunting task if you ever tried to tackle even the tiniest portion of the Appalachian Trail. I think of the good side. I've tried to do it with do it with some buddies and uh We've been like, this is the goal, and it's usually under friggin' twenty miles, and every time we don't make it. 
There is no easy part of the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> no, there's not. No. So, I'm going to tell you a tale of a, well, not a young woman, a middle-aged woman who decided she was going to do it. So, in 1983, a year after her husband was tragically killed in a car accident, mm -hmm. Jessie Hoover decided it was time to do something for herself and go on an adventure. She was a 54-year-old Texas girl, and despite a few concerns her sister and children raised, she knew she could do it. She was going to hike the Appalachian Trail. In May of 1983, Jessie arrived at the beautiful Baxter State Park right here in Maine, only 30 minutes away from where we're recording right now. Right. Bright-eyed and ready to take on the world, she entered Maine's Golden Gateway and was off. Her favorite color was blue. Off on the Mount Katahdin portion of the Appalachian, Jessie was wearing a blue windbreaker, blue jeans, and was carrying her trusty blue backpack that was filled with everything she thought she would need. Before Jessie left Texas, she made arrangements with her family to call at each stop and arrange for money wires at certain locations so she wouldn't have any cash on her and update them on where she was. She arranged a proper plan with her doctors who would set up refills for her epilepsy medications on certain parts of the trail so she would be covered the whole time. When she entered the Katahdin entrance of the Appalachian Trail, she had her bag full of beef jerky and a crisp $20 bill. So she thought she'd be ready to go. Or was she? On May 20th, 1983, Jessie entered the Baxter State Park headquarters, which is in Millinocco. You need a pass to hike Mount Katahdin, but this is May. There's still snow on Mount Katahdin, and what doesn't have snow on the bottom is incredibly muddy. Yep. Not to mention the black flies and mosquitoes that are going to carry you away. Some people can do it, but it's not easy. And on this May 20th day, the Baxter Park Rangers deemed that Jessie was not prepared for the hike up a Katahdin. It would not issue her a pass. So then she headed towards the trailhead of the 100-mile wilderness. Oh, Jesus. Which you're is, not ready for Katahdin. You're not ready to go 100 miles into the woods. Exactly. It is the most remote part of the trail. Of all of the Appalachian yep, Trail. It is. Not discouraged, though, Jessie went off on the trail. It was a beautiful 70-degree day. Unfortunately, that night, temperatures dropped to 30 degrees and oh. it rained. Did Jessie keep going after she checked into Baxter State Park? No one knows. All summer and throughout the years, the trail hikers and wardens alike asked about Jessie Hoover and no one had seen her. No one had seen her hiking once she entered the trailhead. And no one had somehow seen her pass through. She had simply disappeared. She checked into Baxter State Park, was denied a pass to go up Katahdin, went through the trailhead, and literally vanished as if going into the Bermuda Triangle. Two months of Jessie's hike went on, but she never called in to check with her family. What was a personal accomplishment of a lifetime turned into a nightmare. Since May of 1983, Jessie's children have never heard from her or found out where she went. 
So what did happen? Did people go and look for Jesse? On July 11th, she was reported missing. That's when there was a search for her. But the warden said over and over, she wasn't prepared for the hike. Reports over and over just said that she wasn't prepared and that she was never found or seen. There was no media attention at all. And there were no articles written about her disappearance. Just resurgences and original small missing persons reports. It wasn't widespread at all like the Don Fendler case we all know that happened years before 1983. And there was no media blitz like the Geraldine Largate case that was many years after. She simply disappeared from all attention. People go missing on the Appalachian Trail more than you may think. Yep. On average, six people per year go missing on the trail, but many are found or find their way back. Jessie Hoover is a rare example of never being found. She isn't the only example, but still a rare one. Some people are found years after they are reported missing, like our past Geraldine Largay case. These cases, yes, the person has been found dead, but at least they've been found. When Jesse disappeared, another hiker had gone missing around the same time, so the woods were combed over. A ranger on the case said, we went over the woods with a fine-tooth comb. If she was there, we would have found her. We don't ignore people in the woods. But the fact is, Jesse has never been found. And as technology has gotten better in the 40 years, Jessie Hoover has been gone. Her own children have submitted DNA samples in the case, in the case if she was found or not. But still no luck. The DNA has never matched any of the unnamed persons in Maine either. So what happened to Jessie Hoover in May 1983? Where on earth did she go? So, I mean, so... At, when I was younger, I did I volunteered for Deer Go Search and Rescue, which is a team of teenagers and adults who do wilderness search and rescue. So the the main woods is dense. So it is. I had one instance where you know we were. We were told that an elderly man pulled down the wrong road and when his car got stuck he left so that because his wife was in the car and he wanted to go get help and he walked the wrong direction to go get help so we knew he was out in the woods in the vicinity that an 80 year old man could walk in the freezing cold of you know fall in maine and so we started searching and though we could smell that he was there somewhere in the valley that we were in. The trees were so thick that after like five days of busting through branches that were literally from pine trees only six inches apart from each other, just smashing through them full body force, no one found anything. Well, it's it's a possibility that she wandered off trail into the woods. Well, you're... Trail etiquette says that you camp off the trail. Right. So the possibility's there. But the weird thing about this case is mm. 
the the lack of I guess really attempts Response. to find her. So when you you can read the police reports, they're more than public now, especially since it's been deemed a cold case. Mm-hmm. All the reports said over and over and over again was, well, she was not prepared for the hike. She was not prepared for the hike. So it's like this poor woman was not prepared for the hike, and they just blew her off. Yep. And and that's my initial reaction is they said she's not prepared, and that's that. We're blowing. It really looks like they blew it off. But the weird thing is people have gone missing on the main part of the Appalachian Trail for years at this point, and they've been found. Yeah, that's true. She's the only one on the main part of the trail that hasn't been found yet. Yeah. So that doesn't make any sense. And furthermore, looking into, because how I found Jesse Hoover was I went on main.gov, and right there you can find a list of all cold cases separated by what type of cold case, and I went under missing persons. Yeah. It's only a page long. It's not long. It's not. It's a very small portion of main cold cases that are missing persons reports. So... That just goes to prove you also that if you get lost on the Allagash Trail on the main portion, you are probably found because you're not on that list. Yeah. So where what happened? I don't. Where know. did she but go? Th- there's there's the other possibility too. So in another instance, same same thing, uh, we we were called up for a search, and it was of a teenage girl, and. Uh, it was springtime, early spring, and she said that she was going out into the woods to kill herself. She left a note. So me and a bunch of other, you know, 15 to 18-year-olds, we strapped on our crap and waded into the chest-deep 40-degree Penobscot River water that was overflowing into the woods all around the town. And me and a bunch of guys spent three days trudging neck deep in freezing cold water all of us got hypothermia all of us got sick but but there was supposedly a teenage girl who had went out there before it flooded to kill herself Mm -hmm. so oh all of us were out there and we'd come back at night soaking wet barely able to walk shivering to death the warden serves the whole time's right there helping you know all over the place managing and, and orchestrating and then on like day four, as we're once again neck deep with ice floating by us in the woods that's overflowed with by the river, we get the call to come back in. So we come back in, and this teenage girl was not in the woods. She had eloped with her 21-year-old boyfriend. Ugh. And they had driven halfway across the United States before she realized that it was a bad idea. Oh my goodness. Now imagine an adult with resources and actual intelligence compared to a friggin' teenage girl. Ugh, that's true. Who and in the to, 80s. Who wanted to... She's discontent with her life. You hypothetically. Know, hypothetically. She's discontent with her situation. She's going out to prove something and then it just fails epically. She can't go this way. They're telling her she doesn't know what the hell she's doing. She decides to go this way and then realizes it's a hundred miles of wilderness. Yeah. And then she's just, she, you know, at some point, everybody is like, is all of this worth it? And maybe she just, 
I mean, it was the 90s. There's not, there's not all that way to research back into it. She went halfway across the country, changed her name, and never looked back. You, I mean, very well. I mean, especially if you were retired or if you took all the, all your savings out. It, is, it was easier, even in the 90s and 80s, to, to vanish disappear, yeah. if you wanted to. But that's the thing. There's no There's record, no record yeah. of those accounts. But it doesn't look like anybody tried that hard to figure out if that was the case. It seems like it's her kids who are doing all the work yeah. now. Um, her... The concerning thing is her sister reported her missing in July. Yeah. She was last seen on May 20th. Yeah. So she told, she made a plan. If you go hiking on the Appalachian, you make a plan. Yep. You make a plan of when you're contacting everybody. Yep. You make a plan of, of everything. So she made a plan of every point where she was going to contact everybody. She didn't contact them. But, but her sister waited for two months. To report her missing. That's insanity. So, and there's no, the, the, the little research of this case is what makes it so fascinating. Because there's no research into why her sister waited two months to report her missing. Well, you think about that in a logical term, too. Even, they said she wasn't pre- prepared for the climb of Mount Katahdin. Yep. Okay? So the climb of Mount Katahdin is eight miles. Most people can go up and down in a day. Just about everybody can go up and down in a single day. Even with the snow, once you hit the snow, even if you were unprepared to a certain point, you'd be like, okay, it's time to turn around, and it might take you a little bit longer, as long as you're not trapped at the top of it at night. The 100-mile wilderness needs logistics, extreme planning, because most people in the 100-mile wilderness do not carry... A hundred miles worth of gear. There's ATV trails and logging trails that cross it across the hundred mile wilderness, where there's people that they've either that are either friends or locals or people they've paid to make sure that there's resupply at these yeah. intersections. If you just went headlong into the hundred mile wilderness when it's going to drop to thirty degrees in the middle of the night, went off trail somewhere's within a hundred miles of forests. To go to bed and froze to death in the middle of the night, it's not very likely anybody's ever going to find you. But that's the thing. Of, of all the people who have gotten lost on the main portion of the Appalachian, she's the only cold case missing but person But you have left. to take into the perspective that is the longest stretch of uninhabited part of the trail. Most people don't get lost there. Most I mean, people get lost on Katahdin. Or pre hundred mile wilderness, they don't get lost I mean, in the worst possible place. It's true, but it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. And all the people have gotten lost. How is not even skeletal but, remains? I mean, it took two years to find our most recent person who was lost. There's so many explanations to this stuff. There's multiple stream and river fords in the hundred mile wilderness. If you get into that water and you're unprepared, which she clearly was and you get swept away by that cold water, you're already dead in two minutes from hypothermia because you can't swim away from it. No. And then you're freaking 20 miles into the densest part of the main wilderness downriver. No one's going to find you that way. Maybe, but it still feels like it's been too long. It has. To it seems not like have been found. There's, you there's can go been, through every yeah. logical scenario of her being unprepared, yeah. which don't worry, they did in the police reports. 
But that's it. It's been 40 years. At this point, it's there's no more excuses. You can't make excuses anymore. It's true, but there's, sometimes, you know, people end up in a place where it's impossible for them to resurface in the first place. Well, she's got to resurface sometime. You never know. It, it might be, you know, a year in the future. It might be a hundred years in the future. There's there's remains that have been found in Maine that are friggin' hundreds of years old that nobody ever found. Well, her, both our kids are still alive, so I yeah. hope for their sake something happens sooner than later. Yep. I'm well, not I'd sure how long you have that. to keep worrying about your mother. Yeah. You know, It's been long enough. And at this point, when you think about it, she's like... She she's obviously dead. That's the harsh reality. Wherever she is, whether she changed her name or ran away, yep. I mean, she'd be in her nineties. Yeah. So that's the harsh reality. So eventually, though, someone needs to find her. There needs to be some closure. Yeah. I don't disagree with you. Oh. But we don't. We just don't know. There's nowhere to even start. And the only not. the only place to start is the hundred the hundred mile stretch in. That's it. There's no other indication of where she went. So even if she did go off and change her name, there's nowhere to even start. No. Nope. Because there's no um, bank records. There's no transaction records. There's no hotel stay record. There's nothing. There's She literally vanished. Yep. There's nothing. And if she was on the 100-mile stretch, if she did, and her family says she made a plan, so she had a plan to get off on the ATV trails and to check in or resupply or whatever... If she did, she didn't make it there because she didn't do it. So it hypothetically, well, that, she's still thing, somewhere in the main woods, maybe if, in if your she, stream, gone. If she went to do the Katahdin stretch and was told she was unprepared for that, and then went and was like, well, I can't do that. I'm going to go do the 100-mile wilderness. She wasn't the type of person to logistically plan for the 100-mile wilderness. We don't know because we didn't see her plan. Her plan that, that she made with her family that they said that she made has never been, like, it's never been really And how do we anything. ever know that she, she she didn't go back and disappeared after that point? That's the other thing. We don't know. And the kids don't know. Yep. So that's the other thing. We d this case, we just don't, we don't it, it, know. That is twisted. That's for sure. It is Quite a mysterious missing person's case. It is. You're right. If that was the case, maybe she she just went to Baxter. They were like, you know, you can't do it. Went to the trailhead and just left. They probably wouldn't have noticed. Nope. So we don't know. She just decided to leave. No, and there's go. not. There's not like there. There's there's a guard at the entrance of the. There's no mile guard. Wilderness. There's no cameras. It's we don't you know. Sign, you sign a you sign a log book and you walk in. Yeah. We don't know if she decided to go build a house and set up camp and. Apprentice. Yeah. We don't know. That's that's the thing. We don't know. We don't know anything. Yeah. But there's so little about this case known that if anybody were to open up this cold case, I, I don't even know where they would start. Right. Besides Baxter State Park, which is pretty much all worn down. Yeah. There's nowhere else to look in Baxter at this point in time. Well, if she, there is a gate in Baxter. If she was turned back in Baxter, she was turned back. Yeah. But there's nothing, there's no record of anything. And the weirdest thing is there's just no, no record of, of contact, of banks. Nobody's ever seen her plan. There's, she, she vanished. Yeah. She just vanished. 
We don't know what happened to Jesse. Yep. So there you go. There's your depressing story. Why, thank you. You're welcome. Uplifting as always. <laughs> this was a very uplifting episode. It was. <laughs> so death the, by socialist, death by nature. So the only thing these two missing persons cases had in common is the people kind of just disappeared. Nobody knows the actual Nobody end knows of it. what happened and they vanished. Exactly. And that's what Texas girl Jesse Hoover has in common with a World War II hero, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> See, there's always a, there's always a degree of Kevin Bacon, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well that's all we have today, folks. Uh, you can find us on. You can find us on Twitter under the Strange Show, and you can find us on Podbean, Instagram, Tumblr, TikTok under Strange Shenanigans. If you really like us, you should head over to Patreon because you'll see lots of behind-the-scenes stuff and where you're like, hey, how did they get that information? Well, I put it on Patreon. So you have to head on to Patreon on Strange Shenanigans, become a Bigfoot tier, which is like three bucks, and see where we get all our information and then get free stuff out of us. You might be like, it's not free because I spent $3. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to send you stickers and shirts and I don't, whatever else I feel right. like. I'm going to do whatever I want. You're going to get stuff out of it. And if you're so go for it. If you're listening on our gracious host, Podbean, uh, you got to hit that download button because they don't give us credit if you don't. Oh, please hit the download button. Follow right. us. And then if you follow us, Podbean's going to spam your phone. Every time we go live, it's going to go ding, strange shenanigans live. And you can actually call in on our episodes, right? which is so easy. You press a button and then you call Stan over there. That's yep. it. That's all you have to do. It's awesome. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on these all the time. You're more than welcome to call in us when we're doing strange news and just be like, hey, I listened to that Jesse Hoover World War II episode. Yeah. Here are my thoughts. Yeah, exactly. We'd love to hear your thoughts. So I'm Ashley. I'm Stan. Stay super weird, folks.